I'm Jeff Reed. I'm Craig Killian. And this is the From First to Last podcast. from first to last podcast it's a podcast where my friend craig and i we get together each week we work our way through a director's theatrical filmography from their first film all the way through to their last we are in season seven craig season seven can you believe it damn crazy shit i'm actually really stoked for today's oh, I'm episode very stoked. <laughs> i'm very stoked man oh, well, yeah. secondhand stoked there's another stoke after this stoke <laughs> oh, there's so much to be stoked about in there's this a lot season of i think a lot of stoking um we are talking who craig we're talking michael man yeah michael man after or as mick man as he's called in australia <laughs> mickey man mick mickey man actually after hey, today's film, mickey man probably wouldn't be a bad little name for him with his yeah, exactly. uh, people involved today but last week we had a pretty good chat yeah we did we had a mad little intro chat we talked about basically michael mann's life leading up to his first theatrical release which is just pretty darn today pretty darn full it's full very Very fascinating yeah it is very fascinating he's very he's very in depth into the film industry yeah big time and we sort of made a note at the end of last episode which is uh we'd seen in our second season Zack snyder was a person who had worked a lot within the industry, whether it's commercials, yeah. in the lead up to their first film. They weren't strangers to the industry. That's right. And so what we got for their very first film is quite an accomplished first film. Yeah, It was almost exactly. what you'd expect from a second film of somebody. Yeah, exactly. Or even third or fourth, yeah. you know what I mean? But they also had, with Snyder, he also had the accompanying budget. Yes, very you know much I mean? so. Not a, like a loveless budget, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Totally. Oh, I forget what Carnahan's was. What's Carnahan's he made on like three and a half thousand dollars or and something it ridiculous. Like three and a half dollars. But <laughs> I think the Joe Carnahan's actually a really fascinating season because you actually see such growth in that director from oh, first film through incredibly. to the last. Um, and I guess for Zack Snyder, we saw there was a great director from the first film. Yeah. And I think we were a bit excited for today because hearing Michael Mann's history and lead up really made us think perhaps we could get that again. Yeah, it's very true. Because very true. he had done so much work in commercials, so much work in TV and then TV movies that we almost had a well-rounded filmmaker before their first theatrical release. Exactly, exactly. It, was, um, it wasn't one of those first films where you have to go, you have to look hard for the potential. That's right. That's right. So I'd probably just encourage if this is your first week with us for this season, mm. go back, listen to the intro episode. You'll get a real sort of vibe of what's been going on for Michael exactly. Mann. There's some really good little nuggets in there, which both Craig and I were like, oh, wow, that makes so much sense for his future films. Yeah, incredibly. Very early on. So I'll just give a little recap if that's cool, just yeah, for people, yeah, so we so we sort of get there. But essentially, Michael Mann grew up in Chicago, a really rough parts of Chicago as well. And during his time as a teen, he sort of cruised the city and fell in love with the blues scene going on there, uh, which had become quite big. Now, Mann then went off to university where he studied English, and during that English 
course fell in love with film, which led him to move to London to study. During this time, he made commercials with a few film school buddies. Yep. Uh, just a few people, such as Sir Ridley Scott, uh, were his buddies. And that led to him making a few short films slash documentaries before returning to the US. Also did a little bit of sneaky, try to avoid going to war for Vietnam as well. While did he, he get married in his time? He also got married yes, yes, yes. and then got divorced, which brought him back to the US. Pretty quickly. Now, once in the US, he, he started working through connections he made with some mentors on a t- on TV series. Predominantly, they were crime sort of detective shows. Yep. And this is where he really honed his craft, really worked on structure. He also worked on that research side, which is getting to know people's stories and mm. drawing from their stories to create rich, well-rounded and characters. And that realism side. Yes, yeah, very much very so. Very much into the, you know, he wanted to keep it in the realms of, yeah, realism. <laughs> and, and and there was a really fascinating note that I didn't mention last week when he was working on, which we'll get there in a moment, he goes on to, he directs a TV episode for a TV show called Police Woman. And then he wrote and directed a TV movie called The Jericho Mile. Now, while he was making that, he spent a lot of time in Folsom Prison meeting prisoners. Crazy. And he actually continued some of those relationships. And he'd had some connections doing research for the crime shows that he was working on as well. Um, but one thing that really stood out to him is the fact that the people who were inside, uh, whenever he'd watch television, always had these images of criminals looking at Playboy magazines and having yeah. their walls plastered with like uh, pornography or posters of these fake women. Yeah, like Rita Hayworth. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> they, that's exactly right. Like they, they do in Shawshank. But he said what he actually found was they had they wanted reality because they weren't getting reality. So it was quite common to find a photo on the wall, not from Playboy, but actually a photo they'd taken, uh, a prisoner and his wife may have taken of themselves in the act during a conjugal visit. Oh, because cool. Because they wanted to see reality because it wasn't their reality. And so he really wanted to bring those moments to his films, this realism, and we do see that will play out in Thief. So yeah. I'm really excited to get there. So um, the the Jericho Mile is the story. It was released in 1979. It's the story of a prisoner who, while incarcerated for murder, uh, begins running on the track built there, the athletic track, and logs a time which makes people believe that he could be eligible to compete in the Olympics. And so the whole film is about him potentially going to the Olympics as a runner. Yep. And will it happen? We start learning more about the circumstances around his murder and things like that. In the end, he doesn't get to run in the Olympics because there's no way they were going to let a murderer Hell no. in the Olympics. So that's that's that film. It won a few Emmys and it really established man as an up-and-coming director and writer. Um, again, meeting those prisoners is something that he start, he will draw on for the rest of his career as, as something that he uses in his films. Yep. So this sort of leads us now to man's first theatrical release, which is Thief. Thief. And before we really dive deep into the film Thief, let's just take a moment, Craig, and let's just hear about it. An ex-con safecracker plans to leave the criminal world behind after one final diamond heist, but he discovers that escape is not as simple as he'd hoped. Let's chat about Michael Mann's debut feature, Thief. So good, Craig. Now, Thief was actually released in the US in March 27, 1981. 1981. Yeah, 1981. Now, we've actually talked about a film on the podcast from 1981. Plenty. 
Uh, only one so far. Only one? Oh. There's been some 80s films, but oh. 1981, the year itself, is when Sam Raimi released The Evil Dead. Oh, His really? First film. His first film. Yeah. There you go. It's weird. Years. I, I would just always assume that just Raimi's of a younger generation than man. Yeah, it's crazy, the same, isn't it? Even though obviously there might be age different, but then the same cinema generation. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It is mad. Really crazy. Now, the film was released in Australia in September 1981, so a bit of a delay there. As um, most things are getting to Australia. Yeah, very much so. Uh, but it took around $11.5 million with a budget of $5 million. That's pretty darn good. So it's good. It was considered a flop <sighs> in those days. So I think there was a little bit of hype in the release. But before we dive really deep into the film's journey to screen, I thought, let's just... Shake things up a bit different to what we'd normally do. Do it. Let's just take a little look now at what was sort of released in 1981 in cinemas. We've already talked Evil Dead. Uh, And also, what are some major events that were going on in 1981? Because really, we learnt that around that 2007-2008 film scope, they were so affected by the writer's strike, Mm. which then we can actually see why a film may not be as great a quality as what we'd expect from previous work or future work from the director. So 1981, now I've said that, is quite a quiet year for cinema. Oh, I suppose. In terms of major events. There weren't strikes. There weren't too many things going on like A lot of cocaine. (laughs) A lot of cocaine. Yeah. It's 80s, man. There's cocaine on titties. (laughs) (laughs) Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, think Wolf of Wall Street. This is where we're living. This is where it all started. Think it, you know, just think, just friggin'. Steven Spielberg, Catherine, whatever her name, Spielberg. (laughs) (laughs) Cocaine, titties. (laughs) I feel like that's a t-shirt. Anything goes. Anything goes. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Um, So there's really only one real major event that happens in 1981, and that's actually the fact that uh, United Artists... Yep. had reached a point where they were about to declare bankruptcy. Oh, wow. And that was actually the fallout thanks to a $40 million loss of a film called Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate. It have you all... watched it? No. I'm trying. I don't think I have. John, have I? <laughs> Hit us up, John. <laughs> hey, maybe we need a mini app. Yeah. yeah it... I don't think the film's a mini, though. Oh, it's like be... a 3 yeah. epic or something, isn't Whoa. it? But uh, historically, know, Heaven's epics. Gate was a massive budget film that lost a poo-poo load of money yeah. and pretty much ruined a lot of people's careers. Yeah. Was it Chris Christopherson? Yeah, I think it was Chris yeah. Christopherson. Oh, that's a shame. Good um, old Chris. Him and so Bobby McGee. The the sale, this end, ends up making um, people take action, what to do for United um, Artists, mm-hmm. and it actually leads to the sale of United Artists to MGM. So... While there may not be a lot of big sort of major events going on drama-wise, mm-hmm. 1981 is a cracking year for film. Superb. So I like that crack. So we're going to talk the top 10 box office films of that year and a few others as well. But yeah. this is around the time where they haven't started reporting on worldwide box office figures just ah, yet. Okay, yeah. So we're going to look at North American figures. As man's career goes on, we'll get into worldwide figures as they're reported a bit better. And obviously, Evil Dead, go back, listen to the episode. Oh, yeah. Sam Raimi, we did it. It was great fun. Sam Raimi is as such a soft spot in my heart thanks oh, to man. that season. Good old Rames, man. And so obviously, good. you know, Doctor Strange is coming back to my old. I, I love know. You. I love you. We actually finished Loki the other night. Woo! I'm very excited to see how the multiverse plays out. It will be. Um, so, Craig, 
the number one film for 1981. Just a tiny little film. A very tiny film. Didn't make a real big impact in cinema at all. Called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ah, uh, oh, really? Never heard of it. <laughs> Took $212 million in the US alone. Oh, really? It's quite a taking. Now, That's huge. The number two is a bit of an Oscar darling this year. Um, it's called On Golden Pond. Oh, I love On Golden Pond. That's Took $119 million. Jane Fonda, Henry Fonda. Henry um, Fonda. Captain uh, Hepburn? Yep. Mm-hmm. So Henry Fonda won Best Actor that year. Best Actress was Catherine Hepburn. Who directed and it, it? And it also won Best Adapted Screenplay. Now, I didn't look into that. Hmm. I can if you need me to. Best Director for the year was actually Warren Beatty for Reds. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. So um, other things that got in there, uh, Best Film was Chariots of Fire. Hate it. So And Hate Chariots it. of Fire won Best Original Screenplay and Best Original Score. Hate and we'll it. actually talk about Chariots of Fire a little later, Craig. Oh, so, oh I like that. I like um, that. The number two, number three film for 1981 was Superman 2. Ah, rest it. in peace, Richard. I don't think we've talked about Richard. No, we since. haven't, man. So rest in peace. This guy is, yeah, it's just hardcore. Yeah. He was hardcore. Such an, check out his films because that man really gave us the 80s and 90s is Richard Him Donner. and his wife, man. Lauren Shaw Donner. Yeah. Man, these guys have built comic books. <laughs> yeah, they man. sure have. Like, seriously. It's it's he invented heart in comic books. Yep, totally. Totally. So that took a hundred and eight million dollars. Oh, Not bad at all. That's fantastic. That's a great film, man. It's been a long time since I've revisited those oh, original man, ones. I think I need to go superb. back and watch them. Hey? The action sequence in the in the street at the end. That's the of one with Zod. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I and they have the fight scene. That is, considering there's hardly any CGI in that. Yep. Fantastic. Oh, I need to go back and watch it, Craig. So the number four film was Dudley Moore in Arthur. Oh. $95 million. Oh, wow, that's pretty cool. That's a big taking, isn't it? Oh, man. I've, it's happened to me being caught between the moon and New York City. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's crazy. <laughs> That um, is true. <laughs> number five, Bill, <laughs> Bill Murray, Stripes. Stripes? I loved Stripes. $85 million, Craig. That was with um, Harold Ramis? Yeah. yeah. Harold Ramis. Um, I remember it was like one of those first films. It's like a, an old cinema memory of, for me where it's like one of the first films where it was raunchy. Yeah, And exactly. I watched it. Like a, It was like I felt really naughty watching it, which well, was... Bill Murray has a way of making any line sound naughty. Yeah, <laughs> and like when you hear some stories about what was going on in the background of the filming of Stripes, oh, serious? it was uh, debaucherous. Uh, like he and the leading lady were just ducking off to like hook up in the trailer all the time during production. What a legend. So I love Bill, Bill Murray. Murray getting booty calls on Woo! Stripes. Number six was The Cannonball Run. Oh, I hated those films. Hey, dad loved them. Really? Yeah. I feel like it was a dad's movie. You it know, it's like, like a dad's film, but some of them were just, and they just got out of hand. Yeah, man. it was just that satirical, in your face, breaking the fourth, top. fifth walls, and yeah. shit like that. And you just go, I don't care. <laughs> Number seven, Chariots of Fire. I've never seen it. So I hate it, man. I just, I just remember that. Oh yeah, I remember. I like the obviously. <laughs> I just remember just hating the film. That's pretty much all I remember. (laughs) (laughs) And English people in white shorts. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Uh, For Your Eyes Only was at number eight. For Your Eyes Only. I love me some James Bond. Yes. This is Roger. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah you better believe it, baby. Is Roger your favourite? No. Jane? Daniel Craig's my, my favourite. Oh, really? Yeah, Daniel Craig is legitimately my favourite Bond. Yeah, mine's Pierce. Uh, if I was to pick one, I wish we'd got more movies. Roger Lazenby, I love on Her Majesty's Secret Service. George Lazenby. Ah, George. George, George Lazenby. Sorry. George. My bad. It'd be interesting um, if Roger and George melded together. <laughs> that would be good. They would both because George would have brought over that masculinity yep. that Roger missed. He can make a kilt look manly. Yeah. yeah um, but I, on Her Majesty's Secret Shut Service like Roger is, uh, <laughs> is probably one of the most underrated Bond films, I think, uh, followed closely by Quantum of Solace. Number nine. What? Quantum of Solace is a cracker, Craig. <laughs> nah, cracker. One, two punch. Watch Casino Royale with Quantum of Solace and you've got two. But you shouldn't have to do that with Bond films. Oh, but it was, we're reestablishing <laughs> the timeline. It's perfect. Okay, cool. Um, nine, The Four Seasons. I don't have a lot of info around that one, Craig. Man, other I'm than lost. it took $50 million. I can look it up right now quickly while we get yeah, to. Yeah, man, get to it because I'm, I'm curious 10. on what The Four Seasons would be. Yep, we'll get in there right now. So unless, like, obviously, no, that's not it. I was thinking for some reason I was thinking Stephen King. Okay, the four seasons not... starred Alan Alder. Alan Alder? Oh, is this... And um... Carol Burnett. And it is the story of three couples vacationing together every season after one divorces, feelings of betrayal and more spawned criticisms of each other. But oh. things that keep them together are stronger than those which otherwise might pull them apart. Oh. Four seasons written and directed by Alan Alder. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to say that. So that was number nine. At number ten is someone we love on the podcast. Terry Gilliam. Oh, Time Bandits. Finally made a oh, film. I know, he finally did something. Yeah, good on you, Terry. Good on you, Terry. He is I often, how many times he almost missed that. He's often trying to dodge <laughs> some work. Slept in and fucking everything. Now, other noticeable releases. We have talked about The Evil Dead. Also released in 1981. David Cronenberg released Scanners. Yeah, I've, I've saw it ages ago. Me too. I can't barely remember ago. it. Yeah. Uh, Excalibur from John Borman. I love you. I know it's you love one of that. my favorite movies of all time. Will always be one of my favorite movies of all time. A movie I love, The Great Muppet Caper. Oh, can't Muppets remember it. Man. Muppet hard. movies are have merged into one for me. Well, I need the, to go back and just. The watch worst it again. is the new ones are basically doing what they did for Star Wars and rehashed the other ones. Ah, in your version. Okay, so yeah. if you watch Most Wanted, you pretty much watch The Muppet Caper. I want to watch um, Christmas Carol again. Yeah, do it. Uh, John Carpenter made Escape from New York. I oh, love that movie, man. Yeah. Snake Plissken. Seriously, so what a fantastic character. And to think that Kurt Russell did it, you know, like I know. considering his previous ones. Yep. Fantastic. Totally, totally. Now, one of my all-time favorite movies is Brian De Palma's Blowout. Oh, yes. John you Travolta. do love The Blowout, oh, man. man. It's so After watching good. this film... Every recommendation, like after watching Thief, yeah. Every recommendation I get on, um, I think where was I watching this? Stan, yep, is has blowout in. It. Oh, you got to watch it, Craig. If you've not seen it, seriously, get out there, watch it's blowout. Just weird. I'm just freaked out of an early John Travolta. Travolta is before he's arrogant. He plays a sound engineer who works on films. Yeah, and a presidential guy, candidate crashes. Yeah. So <laughs> the the whole story is he's making a horror film. Yeah. And he needs the perfect scream for his horror film. So what he often does is he'll go out at night and just record sounds because he's making horror films yeah. of like the crickets and, you know, streams bubbling and stuff like that. So while he's recording uh, audio, a car crashes and it turns out that a politician was in the car 
And it's like, is it a murder attempt? What? Ah. And his audio is the thing that actually can prove what happened. And so he's trying to manipulate the audio all while falling in love with this girl. And then it all sort of goes to poo. It's seriously, it's a great thriller set within film. It all blows out. Well, blowout is the tire of the car. Oh, that, that does it. Shakalaka. Um, so also released is Gallipoli. Peter Weir directed Man, that. Loved it. Peter Weir, fantastic. So good. John Landis released American Werewolf in London. Man, superb. Yeah. Wait, man, seriously, Rick Baker, fantastic man. Fantastic. Wolfgang Peterson released Das Boot. Yeah, still, I've got to go back and watch it. It's been a long time been for me a long, too. Long, long time. Um, I put these ones in here. This one's for you, Craig, because I know you love Porkies. Yeah, <laughs> Porkies. A few Fantastic. little ties. Porky was John John Belushi in Porkies? No, no, he's no. in. Um, uh, he's in um, Party Animal House. Animal House. That's the one. Yep. Um, and Clash of the Titans is on there. And the reason I put that on there, I is love Clash of the Titans. Clash of the Titans is actually the final Ray Harryhausen film. Oh, fantastic, man. Fantastic. And that guy who was originally, uh, I think it was Bottom the Beautiful or one of those. Yep. Um, that, that, I used to watch that all the Is that time. the Mechanical Owl one? Yeah, man. Yeah, so Mad good. Mechanical Owl. And he yeah. done really well. It was really well. It was. He scared the shit out of me, Medusa did, man. Oh, it was freaky. I remember. Still better than Sam Worthington's one. Oh, most definitely. Not hard, but still. And that horrible cardboard cutout 3D. Did you ever see it in 3D? No. Oh, Clash of the Titans was so... It was a post-conversion, and literally it was like they just got someone to cut the images out and lift was, it forward. Seriously, around that time, there were so many horrible post-conversions. Yeah, it that was, was horrible, was like it? like cashing in, and you're just like, oh, that was a disgusting time in <laughs> cinema. <laughs> Fucking disgusting time. So, Craig, that's pretty much what the landscape of cinema was like in 1981. Good, man. It's a good year, hey? Because I was two years old, that was good. But the journey of Thief actually begins... Much earlier. Ooh. So we're gonna go there now, Craig. Go it, back. It starts quite early in the in the form of a cat burglar Ooh. and a piece of investigative journalism. Ooh. Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalism. Now we're we're gonna rewind all the way back to nineteen sixty six and we <laughs> take <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Scooby Doo Andy. Um but we're going to take a little bit of a journey, but it actually all, like a Michael Mann film, ends up intertwining in a beautiful way. So Superb. just go with me because this is going somewhere. Yeah. Just in case people at home are like, where is this Stick going? with us. So we're in 1966 where in the middle of the night, the wife of a Chicago businessman and also a candidate, Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate, uh, awoke to hearing moaning coming from one of the bedrooms in the house and yep. walked down to investigate it in the middle of the night. Now, uh, Lorraine, who is the wife, when she got to her stepdaughter's bedroom, the door was open and she actually saw a man leaning over a blood-soaked bed while shining a flashlight over the body yeah. of her stepdaughter, Valerie. Yeah. Uh, now, hearing Lorraine, the burglar then shone the torch at Lorraine, yep. the stepmom which sort of stopped her from being able to see anything. So Lorraine actually then ran back to her bedroom to wake her husband and he triggered their burglar alarm in the house. Yep. So the person had got in without the alarm uh, being triggered. Now, the alarm forced the burglar to, fe- to flee and aside from the, the, the wife, there were no other witnesses of the man and the police couldn't actually find any motive as to why someone would break into the house 
and hit the girl Valerie over the head and stab her in her sleep 30 times. Holy moly, man. Now, um, in their investigation, they identified she was also not sexually assaulted, so there's nothing around that Mm. at all. And there were no signs of robbery in the house at all. So it was literally someone came in with the intent to kill this girl. Now, police investigated the murder, and and one particular focus really brought them uh, then to a cross-country burglar gang. (laughs) <laughs> right? So that this stupid was, reason I was thinking fucking the mini marathon. <laughs> Sorry, I got to um, school. So, well, a burglar, a burglar gang that actually operated in multiple Cro- cities yeah, exactly. across the Cross country. country. Um, <laughs> now, police were actually unable to charge anyone around the murder and the investigation stalled. So okay. for a few years, nothing really happened. But a few years later, one of the members of the gang was arrested and put in prison. And while he was serving his time, he actually told investigators that another member named Freddie Malcho had bragged about killer, killing Valerie Percy. Wow, this is getting in Shawshank. Yeah, crazy, right? Yeah. Um, at the yeah, same time, the leader of the gang, whose name was Francis Leroy, Leroy Homer, uh, oh, Hohama. I don't know how to say his name, actually. I should have I should have looked that up. But Hohama, I'm going to say, spoke to investigators and told them that Malcho was the murderer too. So two people in this gang verified that oh, wow. this was Malcho. someone who did. Sounds but like a bad mother. By the time investigators learnt about Malcho's involvement, it was actually too late. Uh, years earlier, Malcho had been arrested for the rape and robbery of someone and in 1967 had attempted to escape the prison and died while fleeing police. Yeah, whatever. So, um, <laughs> Malcho had previously been, previously been interviewed by the FBI and asked if he was involved with the murder of Valerie Percy, mm-hmm. but flat out denied having any part of it. Okay. So, it wasn't until after he died that suddenly people are saying, like, it was Malcho. It was Malcho um, all along. And, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, and so, the murder was actually never solved and just left sort of floating around people thinking it was Malcho. And in 1991, the full-time investigator of the murder said he felt it was Malcho who killed Valerie. And the reason that he believed that was because he found at Malcho's house an airplane baggage ticket that put him in Chicago the night when Valerie was killed. So, like, expecting that he had flown in to do the job and then gone back out again. Um, So that sort of fast-forwards a little bit well, we're at 1991. We're going back to 1974. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so in 1974, uh, the Chicago Times won a Pulitzer Prize based on a series of articles that highlighted the involvement of that burglar gang in Valerie Percy's murder. Yeah. Now, the subsequent spotlight that it threw on the gang's leader, Frank, Frank Homer, led him to try and cash in on his fame by writing a book. Oh. Right? So... The novel was titled The Home Invaders, Confessions of a Back Cat Burglar and was written by Frank Homer. The, the novel was released in 1975 and told the story of Homer, who was a very successful cat burglar, whose skills ended up drawing the attention of the mafia, yep. who asked him to do a job and he finds himself on the mafia's payroll doing jobs for the mafia. Mm-hmm. So he used to be a private thief. Then he was stuck on the payroll of the mafia. Now, it sounds a little bit familiar, right? It does. <laughs> so it's actually, um, I tried really hard to find the book. I found a PDF version, which I felt a bit guilty downloading, so I didn't <laughs> do that. Um, but even what 
really the book goes into depth on was quite difficult to find. Yeah. And the only place that I could find it was to start looking into people's reviews on the books and stuff like that. Um, it's actually, if you have a copy of the book, it's worth a lot of money now as well. Oh, really? Because they're hard, so hard to get. People um, stole it. So basically, most reviews that I could track down said that Holmer actually details technical descriptions on how he executed his robberies. Yeah. Went into a bit of his involvement in the money laundering trade as well and started dishing a bit of dirt about mafia members as well and the insane sort of crimes that they were involved with. One word often used were the atrocious crimes they were involved <laughs> with, right? <laughs> um, and also the book had a foreword that was written by Holmer's prosecutor, who then went on to verify the authenticity of what was written in the book oh, to wow. say this is his, this is true, yeah. I prosecuted him, this is all stuff that we know about. Um so I was a bit disappointed at how I couldn't find much about the book. And this morning, just sort of made a little coffee, was doing going over my work to see if I was ready for recording tonight. And I came across a little surprise in the form of an Amazon review for the book. It Ooh. was sort of like this little, oh. And in 2004, someone wrote a review for the book that actually claimed that the book wasn't written by Frank Homer. Error. I know. Uh, but it was actually written by another man named Joe Wolf in 1971. Now, the review claimed that Wolf's book was actually titled The Thief. Yeah. And was plagiarized by Homer and is almost word for word identical to Wolf's version. <laughs> and in 2004 said that there was an investigation underway yeah. to prove that it wasn't Homer's work. It was actually this guy. Joe Wolf. Joe um, Wolf. That's I did a, a fucking awesome. I name, know man. it is, isn't it? That's like Max Power. And Joe uh, Wolf. <laughs> I did a bit of research into Wolf and actually found out that he was a reformed criminal oh. who was actually a part of uh, the Chicago crime scene. And he had a son named Dick. Um, <laughs> who did Law and Order? <laughs> Law and Order. Thanks, Dad. Uh, well, we might find that out. But he was actually imprisoned for robbery, and while in prison, found Jesus. Oh. And began working in order to assist reforming prisons. Didn't know he lived in prison. Uh, yeah, he did. His name was Jesus. He was in Gen Pop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jesus. There's, uh, not a, there's a lot of kneeling in front of him, but it wasn't religion. <laughs> um, Everyone used to go, oh, deep. <laughs> I'm picturing uh, that 21 Jump Street line. Stop bothering Korean Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Great Jesus. <laughs> He's busy with <laughs> Korean things. Um, so Wolf was actually also uh, an author and had released a few books after getting out of prison. Now, sadly, Wolf passed away in 2016 and the book was never proven to be his work, but his past sort of suggested he would have ties yeah. to all that. Um, so now we're sort of going to go jump ahead to Michael Mann now around the same time as well, if that's cool. So during his work in the 70s, Michael Mann met a man named Chuck Adamson. Now, he was introduced through a family friend. some hardcore names, man. I know, I know. And <laughs> you're about to... I feel like I'm just in a, a low-light bar somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Fucking, like, stools with red tops. The green blues or <laughs> yeah, whatever green it was. Blues, yeah. um, and so, through a family friend, man is introduced to Chuck Adamson. Now, <laughs> we all have that family friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, the family friend also introduced, introduced him to another person who was a police officer named... Dennis Farina. Oh, 
Yeah, now, Laval Dennis. He's a homicide detective. Or was he a robbery? He was actually a part of the Chicago Police Department. Yeah, I know he in was. In the yeah. robbery division. Yeah, it's like that before he came on to um, before acting. Well, actually, Thief is his very first role. Is that his first role? Yeah. And so Adamson uh, was previously a police officer for the Chicago Police Department. <laughs> I and was considered, we're going to talk Farina a bit later. Oh, so yeah. I thought we'd get there. Um, Please. So he was actually considered Chicago Police Department's expert on Frank Holmer. Yeah. So during his time in the Chicago PD's criminal intelligence unit. Now, this unit is reportedly through the 60s and 70s to be one of the most corrupt departments in the Chicago Police Department. <laughs> Go down. Right? <laughs> uh, so during Chuck Adamson's uh, time here, he's on a leave of absence, sort of semi-retirement. Yeah. And he was actually asked to look at new investigation around the murder of Valerie Percy yep. that actually implicated Frank Holmer. Yeah. Oh, okay. So um, so while assisting the investigators, he sort of brought said, oh, I think it sounds like this. Uh, now, I couldn't find if that helped shape things that came later. Mm. But what is intriguing is that Adamson, um, Chuck. This, this, yeah, Chuck Adamson, this police officer, goes on to become the co-creator of TV series Crime Story, which Michael Mann's an executive producer on. Yeah. Um, and we'll sort of talk in the next few episodes, Crime Story. He was also an inspiration for the main character in Heat. Oh, really? And Public Enemies is dedicated to him. Oh, so wow. So, Chuck Adamson is a so major... So, when he's saying main character, he's talking De Niro. Oh, De Niro. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh, probably Pacino. Maybe Pacino? He's a cop? Yeah, Pacino, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and Public Enemies is dedicated to him. So, Adamson is this big figure in mm. this world. Yeah. But what's actually crazy is the way that Adamson becomes a, a doorway to the criminal world for Michael Mann. <laughs> yeah. So through this introduction to Adamson, um, he is, it, and it's already become apparent through those sort of connections to heat and public enemies. He becomes pretty important to Michael Mann's storytelling direction moving forward. Now through Adamson, he meets a group of professional thieves. And in 1975, he's introduced to a man named John Santucci. Santucci. Now, he also is introduced to a man named W.R. Brown, and both men were professional thieves Yep, who ended up working on Thief. Tucci's the cop. S- yeah, Santucci is, I think it's Uzizi or something his name is. Yeah, he's a like cop who comes to his window. and Yeah, yeah. The, he's sort of tailing him, and then he's in the interrogation. This well. is my name. Remember my yep. name. Yeah, so that's Santucci. Now, Santucci and Brown both have fascinating history. Santucci spent almost a decade as a professional safe cracker. Brown's in there, isn't he? Yeah, Brown's in there as well. He's the guy with the fucked up glasses. Yeah. Yeah. So um so Santucci was a safe cracker and got arrested and after three years in prison decided he was gonna clean up his act. And he actually opened a pawnbrokers who um he was working in before his introduction to Michael Mann. Oh, okay. Brown actually would become known a few years later, which I couldn't completely verify this, but a few sources said that he was a part of the theft of London's Marlborough Diamond, which was worth £400,000. Oh, right. Good Lord. So, as you can imagine, these uh, these introductions, they become really crucial to Michael Mann's next project, yeah. which is Thief. Uh, while working on the Jericho Mile, Mann purchased the right to the rights to Holmer's book, which I put that in there as well because the link is 
that we know Adamson has met Man. Yep. He is the main person who knows about Homer. Yep. The expert. And now Michael Mann goes out and purchases the rights to Homer's book. Yep. So I But not I, Joe Wolf's book. Not Joe Wolf, because Joe Wolf is just this nobody. He's gone. Um, Joe Wolf's dead. So he purchases the right to the book, The Home Invaders, with the intention to develop it into a feature film and begins working on the screenplay. Now, Mann's time working on the Jericho Mile was actually really important as well with his work with the prisoners, as we sort of touched on before, uh, which Michael Mann actually, I wrote this down because it was really important. It says he spoke about the process of um, Jericho Mile and he says it probably informed my ability to imagine what Frank's life was like. Frank being the main character from Thief, where he was from and what those 12 or 13 years in prison were like for him. The idea of creating his character was to have someone who has been outside of society, an outsider who has been removed from the evolution of everything from technology to the music that people listen to, to how you talk to a girl, to what you do with your life and how you go about getting it. Everything that's normal development that we experience, he was excluded from by design. In the design of the character and the engineering of the character, that was the idea. Yeah, exactly. And that's considered one of the major um, drawbacks of serving time in prison is the yeah. fact that maturity-wise, you actually get put on pause. Yep. And that's why so many people, when they come out, well, they're starting now to put program rehabilitation programs, a lot of them in there, so they can actually... Um, learn stuff and build it on but they used to just people would come out and they're the exact the exact same thing if not more yeah just about crime yeah people would go into crime and it's easy to fall into and we'll get to some of that stuff well, you actually start too. networking don't you <laughs> very much so and it's like hey yeah how do i learn about because a lot of young, um, young criminals would learn the most about crime in jail yep and that's why uh, the juvenile system is such a risk because you have to punish people yeah, for their crimes. But then they end up being in a population of people who just encourage people to continue doing crime and teach them how to do more mm. crime. And that's <laughs> the difference between um, and certain countries. Obviously, America is more based towards punishment. Yep. While places like Sweden and Denmark are more based rehabilitation. upon rehabilitation. Yep. Totally. Now, in another interview I found, Mann actually said that the one thing I know about people in prison who are really smart and have strong egos is that they ask themselves the most important fundamental questions in life with an urgency that people living outside of prisons don't. Uh, He also says some of those questions are, why should I continue to live? How should I sustain my life? What's time? What am I going to do when I get out? What do I want my life to be? And as it gets granular and detailed, what kind of house, what kind of woman, what relationship to biological biological process, and do I have to have a child? And these sort of thoughts really became the, the genesis of the character Frank yeah. in Thief. And he carries that little piece Gold of shape. paper yeah, that is like his hardcore. life oh, Very much so. And again... <laughs> just that awesome picture of Willie Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is that Frank Miller? <laughs> like, That's Willie. Uh, Got a picture uh, of your Willie on that? <laughs> <laughs> Don't touch Willie. Good touch advice. Me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, man has actually been asked after Thief was released how much of Homer's novel was used in the film and he actually said uh it's loosely based on it it was really just the starting point of the screenplay which is mainly the lead characters and their story arc 
example, the thief who finds himself being headhunted by the mafia, yeah. working and stuck in the system with the ma- mafia. So as he wrote and prepared the story, Mann then brought on John Santucci as a technical advisor yeah. to make sure that... And what we're going to see is a real sort of, if we're going to use the word genesis again, we're really going to find that Mann wants his stories to be as authentic as possible. Yeah. And I think this is really going to be an undercurrent through a lot of his films is that he wants it to be as um, authentic as possible. And so he brings on people who can really inform everyone involved in the best way possible that this is how it is if you're a thief. So he brings Santucci on uh, to, to share about his time as a thief and really became a source of inspiration and information for the film. Uh, James Kahn has actually um, come out and said that... Uh, he based the character on Santucci. Wow, that's pretty awesome. So, but he didn't want to do Santucci's accent because he felt it would fly into this comedic realm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Santucci has that, uh, like, a pretty hardcore accent. It's very stereotypically mafia. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> does, a lot of them are very yeah. stereotypical mafia. Um. So. The the source of inspiration was so much that actually the main heist that we see in the film using that thermal lance, yeah. uh, the one that's used to cut through the vault door, was an actual robbery that Santucci planned and undertook. Man, such a fantastic. Uh, so once James Kahn was, was hired, Santucci actually then went on to give Kahn lessons on how to successfully crack safes. Yep. Uh, using Santucci's real-life tools. <laughs> and so... Khan actually became so good at that when Santucci would be asked questions on set, he'd joke and say, why ask me? You may as well just talk to him. Uh, so James <laughs> Khan was so good. And what's crazy is, Craig, is that first vault that we actually see James Khan breaking in the film yeah. was budgeted. It was a $10,000 vault that they purchased and James Khan legitimately cracks that safe using Santucci's tools and Michael Mann films him doing it. That's fantastic. Now, James Kahn actually cracks every one of those safes oh, really? legitimately in the film. Awesome. So all the stuff I they're doing you, is actually, they're actually being trained how to do this stuff. Mm. And I loved that shot when James Kahn finally gets through the door of the massive vault that they're uh, hitting. Oh, yes, the final vault. And he takes the, the mask off and he's so covered in dirt and grime and he just sits down lights a cigarette. I thought the film was going to end there. Me too. <laughs> I was I, like, I, I'm I, sure there was more time to this, man. Well, I was like, so I'd had to, I got a phone call in the middle of the film, so yeah. I just had to put it on pause. And then Kathy Lee came home and I said, oh, I just got this little bit of film to go. Mm. They're just about to do the heist. Can't have long to go. I did not know there was going to be another hour, 10 minutes. After yeah, man, seriously. But I, it, it, there's, there's a... But we'll talk about that later. There's a couple of almost false endings. Yeah. Well, they're almost like, I felt like they were like little misdirections. Yeah, You're like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, you clever bugger. You cheeky bugger. Yeah, that's right. That you. picture of the horizon, that's you not it. You cheeky. Cheeky, <laughs> cheeky McMahon, you. <laughs> so I do love, again, I just want to take a bit of time and just appreciate in this film just how much detail Michael Mann goes into. Yes, incredibly. That opening scene, which is like 10 minutes of virtually a silent film. Yeah. No dialogue at all in it. And far out, like 
even just from the rain falling at night. Yeah. You just got this vibe of the world that you were in. That opening scene, like the opening, like that opening shot. Yeah. Is you get this weird Blade Runner feel to it. Don't you? Um, where the rain's coming down, but it's just like, but there's nothing futuristic about it at no. all. The rain's just coming down and it's showing obviously the um, fire escapes. And it is just an amazing shot. Oh, from the get-go. An get amazing goes. shot. Like, seriously, it is so fucking impressive. Yep. The, like, it's as impressive as Catherine Bigelow's opening shot of The Highway. Yes. With Willem Dafoe in yep. Loveless. You know what I mean? You just go, it's, you just go oh, damn. It's such assured filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. It's fantastic. It was seriously <laughs> like fantastic. the moment that first shot happened, I like sat up in my chair. Mm. It was so crazy. I was lounging back and then I Same. just sat up and I was like, oh, oh my God. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was like. I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah. Uh, ooh. <laughs> I don't want to make a crazy call, but literally if quality gets better every film, mm. I'm unsure why when people talk about Michael Mann as being a great director, he's not like in this tier, like God tier. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, like, yeah, exactly. Because it's such an assured start to filmmaking. That first that first shot, seriously, they're looking up at the rain and then the camera slowly lowers down to street level. So freaking so, good, and like, man. And you see it all through, like how, you know, everyone says it's so stylized. It's, it is beautifully stylized. And But we've got to say this film... For people at home that may not have seen it yet, mm. go out and watch it because this is Stan. a film, Stan, it's pre-Blade Runner. Yeah. You've got to remember, this is a film that when Nicholas Winding Renf talks about inspiration, yeah. he claims that Thief is the inspo for um, Drive. Yeah. Well, Drive is actually one of the ones that come up as well. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, you know, it's Drive, it's bloody... Brian De Palma blowout. Yep. It's, um, you know, like you said, it's Ridley Scott. Yeah, very you know, it's Ridley those Scott. Bonnet views. Yeah. You know, it's these types of things where, yeah. And we do have that awesome moment in the film where he drives his car and you've got the neons. It even has a very the, Scorsese. Doesn't it? Feel I felt to the same. Certain parts of it as well. Yeah, and which is, which is, makes so much sense because later Michael Mann goes on to produce The Aviator with. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So, but like the the attention to detail from the get go, like even the fact that, like my research, found that like that thermal lance was a legitimate thermal lance that he and Jim Belushi operate. Yeah, to cut through a a, a legitimate vault door. Let's look, look, look. It's James Belushi. Uh, James, okay, like Belushi. James Carey. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> okay. it's James until Love they want to get a little bit. You know, K nine. Then he turns Jim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or before that. Um, Life according to Jim is where it really took off for me. Um, so <laughs> oh, Jesus, that's far in his career, man. That's his, that's his death knell. Yeah, that's where you're coming from. Shit. <laughs> you jumped on late in a bandwagon. <laughs> so I'm glad I got that response out of you. Um, actually, James Belushi tells a really cool story in one of the interviews that I saw. He was in this documentary. But his brother series. being coked. Uh, well, they actually, we'll get to that a bit later. They actually were filming Blues Brothers at the exact same time in oh, Chicago. Really? Oh, so, oh, and I didn't know, but John Belushi had a speakeasy that he owned called the Blues Brothers Bar. That would make 100% sense. 
And so the cast and crew of Thief would all go after shooting to the Blues Brothers bar and hang out listening to blues being played and just partying all Fantastic. night long. Uh, so this is a little cool thing. I but like that. Belushi. Cocaine and titties. <laughs> <laughs> just Tuesday world, cocaine all over your yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I've got so many jokes going through my head, Craig. Stop it. Um, so Belushi tells this story that like man's attention to detail is so meticulous that on the rooftop scene, um, you know where they're sort of planning the the heist on the rooftop? They're with Lou, the, oh, the yeah, so mob they're, boss. They're with the mob boss. They're looking in at another building. So they're on one building looking, looking down, down at the other, at the target building. That's right. Yes. That's right. Which I can say I see so much inspiration in this film for future Christopher Nolan films. Oh, man, seriously. it's Inception, it, Tenet. There's it's, so it's many that, moments Once again, in this it's film. that stylized clean cut. Yeah, like there's, but there's, it's clean cut, like in its, um, in its shapes, like there's nothing blurry about any of yep. it. Yeah, but it's also very, um, there's standardized coloring. Yeah, every scene. So one's a shade of blue, one's yep. a shade of grey. You know, one's you so know, intentional. Yeah, exactly. It is so intentional. I love it so much. But like uh, Belushi tells the story of the fact that man was so detail focused. He had an idea of what type of shirt Belushi's character would be wearing on the rooftop for that scene. Yeah. And it drove the costume designer crazy because they kept trying to find the right Hawaiian shirt for this scene. And man just kept thinking, no, this is the, not the shirt, not the shirt, not the shirt. So he just knows the details. And again, like looking, this is 1981. You can't watch this film and not see echoes of Finch's work in, say, Zodiac. Yeah, exactly. Like there's just so much here that I guess I was probably a little bit naive to how important Michael Mann's films could potentially be. I knew Heat was a big film. But um, Thief I, itself, I think Thief, uh, Thief is very much shows you that there was life before Heat. Yeah. Oh, and you can't help watch this film without seeing parallels to Heat. Oh, Heat is just this is just this is you could tell that if people say Heat is um, innovative, like you know certain scenes and everything yeah, yeah. like that. You say, well, no, actually, a lot of that was started in Thief. <laughs> Wasn't it? The diner scene, which we'll talk about very soon, yeah. Craig, is like the moment that that diner scene with Khan and uh, Tuesday, Tuesday World, World yep. happened, I was like, holy crap, it's literally lit and shot like heat. It like, could almost be <laughs> the same freaking place. I, my notes actually say, if I... The camera panned back and we saw that De Niro and Pacino were sitting at a booth somewhere else in the restaurant. It would make so much sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Incredible. I saw one. I, I was reading through my Reddit because it's my favorite pastime. Yeah. And I was reading one guy goes, I like to watch Thief and think this is what Robert De Niro was like when he was younger. Robert De Niro's <laughs> character in Heat was like when he was younger. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Cause really, but he had no criminal history. That's right. That's right. Um, but there are so many little seeds of heat in this film. So if you're a fan of heat, watch Thief because you are just going to be like, yeah. oh, my God. Now look at it at a prequel and you'll love it even more. I know. It's so crazy. <laughs> um, so the the physical props of the thermal lance as well was like a real challenge to film. Yeah. 
because it was so hot. They said it ran at 8,000 to 9,000 degrees. There's a guy with a fucking fire extinguisher there. That's how hot (laughs) it is. It's so hot. And did you notice why? Was because he was literally the embers that were dropping off. Yeah, we'll he was having to to put the floor out. Yeah, exactly. And and then even once he jumps through into the thing, he's still doing it. Yeah, he's still just putting it out because it's just so hot. Yeah, it's so crazy. And I loved that shot from inside the vault. The yes. camera just watching the sparks fly out. It was again like that's a physical effect. Some of it comes across as like a doco, doesn't it? It's just like oh, oh, oh. But it's so intriguing. It is. Like, it's incredibly it's intriguing. It's really good. So, um, as we talked about, John Santucci is brought on. He plays Arizi. He gets a role in the film. And uh, he's also one of the cops. So, he is, he's one of the cops that are tailing um, Frank in yep. the film. He also does the the little interrogation scene where all the cops are playing good cop, That's bad cop. hilarious. That. That is a horrible scene. Yeah, it's one of the weaker moments. <laughs> it's one of the, the weaker moments. Like, there are some good, but they just, for some reason, it's just like, he had six mates that wanted to be in the scene. And they're all criminals. <laughs> yeah, and they're all criminals. And they all just want to push into the scene. Yeah, let's, like, let's give us a chance to put it can back. Can I be in there? Up. I'll just be in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so a real, another interesting little connection in the film is that Dennis Farina was a real-life police officer in the Chicago police. And this is his film debut. Yep. Uh, and... He was actually the, in <laughs> real you, life. Fuck <laughs> in real life, he was the arresting officer of Santucci when he got captured. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that is fantastic. So, things take a little sad turn for Santucci, though, because actually in 1996, the reformed Santucci returns to a life of crime. Oh, it'd be hard. And he was actually in re- arrested. Especially if you're not good at anything else. Yeah, if, well, and you basically glorified in a movie. Yeah, exactly. Saying this is your talent. Mm. So, unfortunately, uh, Santucci was arrested following an investigation into vending machine thefts. <laughs> oh, I guess so. His standards dropped a little. <laughs> I think times might have fallen. <laughs> he might have fallen on some hard times. But when police searched their car. Does he know you can just put your fucking hand up in there? <laughs> <laughs> well, he was just taking, rock it. You just got to rock it. You don't he, need. He was cracking Mr. them Santucci, open. get the world out of here, please. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to drill. <gasps> I'll buy you a chocolate. <laughs> yeah, he just brings in that huge welding thing. <laughs> <laughs> the thermal <laughs> <world>. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Oh. Excuse me, sir. You can just shake it and the chocolate will come out. <laughs> he finally gets a chocolate bar and it's all melted. Yeah. <laughs> oh. They weren't lying when they said 8,000 degrees. Uh, so when police searched uh, Santucci's car, they found burglary, burglary tools and <laughs> asked him, uh, what did he have to say about this? And his only response to the police was, guilty. <laughs> His response should have been, um, I make movies. I do movies. I'm a consultant. (laughs) (laughs) Did you see Thief with James Caan? He was in Godfather, you know. (laughs) Um, So with the script finished, uh, Man begins casting the film. Now, at the time, the film was actually called Violent Streets. Oh. That was the title of the film. And it's actually the title of the film all the way up until its release. Oh, really? I like Thief better. So for for the role of Frank... Producers, which included Jerry Bruckheimer. Yeah, man. Good old Brucks. Uh, I think they partner up too on the Miami Vice TV series, maybe. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so they had a short list of lead actors for Frank that included Gene Hackman. Yeah, no. Roy Scheider. 
Yes. Al Pacino. Obviously. Who actually turned down the role due to scheduling conflicts, so was offered the role. Probably around Sepika. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Uh, Man's first choice for the film, though, was Jeff Bridges. Yes. Now, unfortunately, producers rejected Bridges because he was so young and fresh as an actor. But he would have been hardcore. He would have come out of Starman around this yep. time. So, unfortunately, cool they felt that he wasn't experienced enough to play a hardened criminal. So, audiences wouldn't believe him as someone who had served prison good time. Good point. Actually, that's a very good point. I could see him as the precise professional. Yep. But, yes, if they wanted to play more on that, look, I did hard time yeah pre-prison maybe yeah pre-prison, Life pre-prison yeah, exactly post-prison maybe not um so like lebowski time yeah um so they ended up hiring james khan for the role of frank and there's actually a really cool story which is like um khan at the time uh was working on a film called chapter two. Oh. uh Never now we got a Bit of, bit of context on Khan's career at this point is that it's quite a few years after Godfather. Yep. And he had been in a few leading roles following The Godfather because he was nominated for an Academy Award in The Godfather. Oh, yes. Uh Go went Sonny. on Went on to lead, have a lead role in The Gambler. Yep. And Rollerball. Yep. Was getting quite big, but his lead roles had begun to slow down a little. Oh. Now... While filming this film, Chapter 2, he returned to his trailer and actually found Michael Mann sitting in there waiting for him oh, cool. with a manila folder. And uh, in that manila folder was a copy of the script for Violent Streets. Yeah. And he said, uh, I would like you to read this, please. Actually, who would be good? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds would. Deliverance. Look, look at Deliverance. Yeah. The time around Deliverance. Yep. Yeah. He could have done it. Very not much acting so. wise, not acting wise. James Khan, I think, is a more talented actor. Yeah, but yeah, macho. Yeah, very interesting. Very he has that machismo, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, I Ooh. love it. Um, so Khan and Man had never actually met. Yeah, and Man asked him to read the script. Now, after reading it, James Khan knew that this was the role that he'd been craving—something yeah. just a bit media, leading man. Um, and he says it was just this incredible, unbelievable character. It's almost like too much. It's almost like the Hunchback of Notre Dame too much. (laughs) Um, So I really love James Caan in this film because I actually think it shows a range to him that we may not get very often in films. Yeah. There is is a little bit more, there is a bit of more softness in this than you usually see from James Caan. Um, not huge amounts, but enough to, enough, well, enough to soften him. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And he actually found the role quite challenging because he felt that he is always wanting to be emotionally available Yeah, as a person. But the role of Frank actually needed him to be quite closed from everything because you need to do that as a criminal to protect yourself. Yeah, exactly. And the only, only real moment of vulnerability we get is when he's giving that monologue in the diner. Oh, I think one of the other great moments you see is so obviously spoiler territory towards the end where he um where the mafia have are starting to crack in and start yeah. to kill him, like just killed um James Belushi. Yeah. And he's telling his wife, You have to go. I don't want you here anymore. Yeah. 
you actually see the crack in his face. You know yeah. what I mean? I think that's a beautiful scene. It's breaking him to yeah, say that exactly. to a woman that yeah. he loves. It's very and it's very once again, it's very De Niro wish. It's nothing you you know, if nothing you can um leave in under ninety seconds if you feel the heat around the corner. Yeah. Um and it's just yeah, and it's that's a fantastic scene. And the other one I really loved with him in there is it's following they've just had the big argument. So he falls in love with Tuesday World. Yep. She tells him, I can't have a family. Like yeah. I physically can't do it. And so they go to look at adoption. Oh, yeah, that's a fantastic scene. And he gets really upset because uh, his criminal background doesn't make them eligible for a child. Yep. And there's this beautiful moment where after all that's gone, they've been escorted from the premises. They're just sitting outside their home on a chair under a blanket and he's like basically laying with his head on his wife's shoulder as as she's comforting him and the camera beautifully pans away. But that moment in the adoption agency. is hardcore too. Yeah. You know, where he goes, where did you raise? He goes, you ever, you ever, I was raised in state care. And he goes, rat, rat. Yeah. (laughs) He was so great. That security guard, he goes, what? (laughs) <laughs> the, other moment, the other moment I love in the film as well Is when um, Another spoiler territory When Willie Nelson has passed away Oh Willie And so uh, Willie, Willie Nelson star. is basically his mentor The closest thing to a father figure he's yeah, ever exactly. had He's in prison But has told James Khan Or Frank That he's only got a limited time left Because he's got a heart condition yep. And he's probably going to die soon So they get him out he um, has that awesome scene in the in the um, court where the lawyer and the the judge, <laughs> judge are communicating through fingers, like as they rest their <laughs> face much? on how much bribe they need to, yeah. to pay. Um, I did enjoy that, but so Willie Nelson's character passes away, and the doctor has to tell Frank that they couldn't save him, <laughs> and Frank just stares him down, like just stares him down. And I actually saw an interview with the actor who plays the Doctor. And can I say, 1981, that is insanely progressive to have a black Doctor. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Like, my thought was, how wonderful is a film where at no point are any of the black characters a stereotype? Think used cars. Yeah. Where we had that that sort of, oh, I'm going to get in trouble, you know. Oh, like, I'm sorry, I messed up my job, best friend, didn't I? Yeah, <laughs> you that's know, that's bullshit. Yeah. The Jim Crow crap. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so, like, um, in that moment, the actor said they had not discussed how they would play that scene out. So James Khan just kept staring him dead in the eyes, and he actually became terrified of James He looks Khan. terrified, man. That dude's so terrified. He is looks a, terrified and tired like a doctor. Yeah, so that is a genuine reaction of... I don't know what James Kahn is going to do right now. No one knows. It's Sonny. It's Sonny Corleone. <laughs> now, Kahn actually talks about that aside from The Godfather, mm. the monologue scene in this film is the thing he's most proud of the in his The diner scene. Uh, yeah, the yep. diner scene. The, um, and so it is. it really is. It's the moment that you go, wow, there is... There really is a great actor in there. Yeah. So yeah, and and obviously those who don't see this film, so there's this weird part. He grabs Tuesday. Well, yep. Very. Who's a waitress? Very great. Yeah. He he actually stands her up by two hours. Yep. Um, and grabs her and pulls her out of this. It's a weird group between these, and you find out that these are actually that ignoring where he grabs her and pulls her into the car and stuff like that, yep. and they go to this um. 
go to this diner. diner, you actually find out that they're actually two broken people. Yeah. And they're both have the same dream, but they're both one, only one has the courage to actually just say, look, let's just fucking, let's just do it. Yeah. And yet, and that's James Cunn. James comes like, look, you come from this broken, she came from a broken, she's an ex, um, drug dealer's girlfriend who got stuck in Colombia, got everything done to her while she was over there and just wanted that perfect life that he has, yep. that he has on his goal card, which is, you know, the kids, everything like that. Yeah. But she's too scared to step out of her comfort zone to do it. He is obviously this guy who's just like, like, well, he's just precise. He wants to get it all sorted. Yeah. You know, he has his dream and he's pushing, pushing hard to, but all he needs is, that wife who will understand everything he wants because Willie Nelson at the time has already said to him, look, you've got to tell her the truth from the start. Cause he yep. had a breakout with his, he lost his ex-wife. Yeah. Um, because he never actually told her what happened and when what he told he does her, as a you know, job. Blah, blah, blah. and, um, and so this is where all this scene comes up and obviously they're both really laying it on the table, who they are as characters. And yeah, James Khan comes in and he tells about these, he doesn't so much tell so much about his past, but he tells why he does what he does because of what happened in jail. Yeah. That's a very awesome scene. It's so good, isn't mm. it? And you can't watch that scene, one, visually without seeing heat. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. You also can't watch that scene without thinking. I just kept thinking of the relationship between Val Kilmer and Ashley Judd. Yeah. In heat. Very similar sort of thing. Two broken people who have come together Um one just wants to get out of the life, you know, yeah, <laughs> and exactly. the wife wants normal for them. Um, now, I also feel like that scene, while it's got its connections to heat, there's, as we mentioned, there are a few other scenes throughout the film that are really connected with heat. Yeah. Um, th- we've got the diner scene. Um, there's that the tracker that's dropped on the bus to misdirect police at yeah, one point. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Off and to again, Des Moines. Yeah. <laughs> I really loved the way man showed how the trackers worked yeah i found that so fascinating the fact that they were like looking for a wavelength that was going higher and stuff like that so but as we've said a few times if you love heat please go watch thief because this is a film that you're just gonna love now in my research craig i actually found a review from 1981 for the film oh really and i wanted to talk about a couple things but namely i'll get back there in a minute um i actually no i put it all here so here we go so it was 1981 it's the new york times oh and it's really interesting because i only know thief from what i've researched which is in a modern sense people think it's such an inspiration for future films yes groundbreaking film for the heist genre um so new york times viewed it as an okay film. Yep. About Michael Mann, they say, Mr. Mann may well become a very good theatrical filmmaker. But, among other things, he's going to have to learn how to edit himself to resist the temptation to allow dialogue that is colourful to turn all of a sudden into deep abiding purple. (laughs) Time after time, scenes start off well and slip into unintentionally comic excess. I don't think comic excess. I think there are... It's funny you said that because I was just about to say that he, he does he does get a little bit more um, quicker in his cuts, obviously, as he goes yeah. along. Yeah, he gets uh, punchier. Yeah, he does get punchier. He does linger somewhat on... Yeah. Not just... 
he lingers on certain things which don't need to be there. Yep. Um, that just just not relevant to it. This is where you and I get that sort of fake ending. Yeah. Types, you know, because it yep. just has that lingering. Um, we're wrapping spots. this up. Yeah, we're wrapping this up. This is the end. Yeah. This is the end. You know, like, and I understand that, but then there are times. I could see why he does it because there are times where he does linger and it actually adds more. So the first first um, robbery, the first safe ring, a lot of that is linger. You know yep. what I mean? Like it comes in, you see, but you also, it sets up how methodical yes. him and his crew are. Yep. You know, they jump and out of a, a car. And they're a well-oiled machine. Exactly. They jump out of a car, they jump into a car. Yep. And it's all done... And you pretty much, there's, you know, it's it could almost be one take, you know what I mean? Like, you're pretty much just sitting with them through the whole drive. They jump into another car. You know, they open it up. They've got these weird little things parked everywhere and stuff. And then they go out. And so, these, the lingering actually works when it comes to the process of what they do. Yeah, You know, because it does build in, like I said, it does build that methodical nature of the crew. Yeah. So, but it just doesn't work... When you're not on the job, when they're not totally. on the job, you know what I mean. Um, and so, yeah, I see the point there. Well, it's a craft that he's toned more, isn't it? And yeah, he exactly. does. I think he learns from his mistakes. Um, the review also praises Khan, but they do criticise the diner scene in particular. Oh wow! Yeah, so they say the sequence in which Frank courts Jesse in an all-night hamburger joint, forcing himself to be honest with her, begins as being both funny and moving, and then slops over into weepy sentimentality. Oh, I don't think so. But I do think it's really interesting how time can shift the perception of that. Yeah. So I guess in 1981 this is different to what you would normally get in this moment. Yeah. So therefore, as a reviewer, you're like, this is different. This is slower. Yeah. You know, they've moved into this where we look back with our heat glasses on and we go, oh, wow, this is what people aim for now. Yeah. Those those diner scenes are crucial. They've become almost a trope. Yeah, exactly. Because I think we're more, and let's let's be very honest, is, with the Tarantino, post-Tarantino world, yep. we're very dialogue-based. Very, very dialogue-based. And I don't, look, and I don't want to say that definitely he's not the one who, who created the, you know, I would say more, you know, more Scorsese and stuff yep. like that. But who popularized yeah, that. Yeah, made it accessible. Yeah, that dialogue for the for the group. Yeah, it was Tarantino. And so we look back at these moments and go, look, that's beautiful dialogue. You know yeah. what I mean? And again, like you can't... You can't help but see little elements of man in future Tarantino films. Oh well, you can't look. You can't see like um, the long dialogue scenes, like like if they say weepy and stuff like that. Well, think about um, David Carradine in Kill Bill. Yep. When he goes through the whole Clark Kent thing. Yep. You know what I mean? And then you go, okay, well that's where that goes weepy and da da da. But then people will look at that as a masterpiece. Yeah. You know totally. I mean? So yeah, you're right. Very right. Mm. Um, now, what's interesting as well is the monologue was actually based around a letter that Man had received from a prisoner. So the whole diner scene where he talks about cool. all this stuff was actually in a letter that uh, Man had received. Now the review also goes on to praise the film debut of an actor named Robert Prosky. <sighs> now I had no idea that this was Prosky's first ever film. 
This is his first ever film. Yes, this is his film debut. But he was before this. He was in the Monsters. I don't. Do you know what? I thought the exact same thing, Craig. So that's not him. Let's go. I don't think it is. Is I, it Robert or Leo Prosky? Leo is his character. Leo is his character. The actor is Robert Prosky, uh, and um, he's been in a couple other films that I thought. While I do this, I'll uh, there he is. Um, so. I was really blown away by the fact that this is his first ever film. Yeah, exactly. Um, and really... Are we talking to mob boss, Robert Prosser? Yeah, yep. yeah. He, okay. He plays, plays Leo. The mob, plays Leo, the mob boss. So hardcore in this. He does. He's, he's this beautiful old man until he no longer has to be. That moment, too, where he's standing over Frank and it, threatening him. Yep. It was, like, so... Like you can't watch Guy Ritchie without seeing those moments. You, this, but this, yeah, because it's that menace. Yep. It is menacing. You know what I mean? Like he and he drops the c word in it. Yep, and you're just like, whoa, whoa, totally. But this is the dude who's talking about family and yep. shit, man. What the fuck? I'm your father. Like basically yeah, I mean, talking about like all my family. There's nothing with our family. You know? Yep, totally. I lo- talks about how much he loves his kids, but on a dime turns nasty. nasty. Like doesn't turn, doesn't turn nasty. Turns atrocious. Yeah, like this, totally. This, you could tell this was probably something like that. That Tooch dude was like, "Yeah, man, they get hardcore. They yeah, can turn yeah, yeah. And just become these totally just monsters." And um, little side note on his character Leo, who was based around a mob boss named Leo Rugendorf in real <laughs> life, and he was actually the man who implicated Frank Holmer in the Valerie Percy murders. Oh wow! So don't know if that was a little throw him under the bus, get him out of the way. But yeah, going back to Prosky, his only other work he'd been in a little bit of television. He was an uncredited role in William Friedkin's The Brinks Job in okay. 1978. But Thief is his first role, official wow. role. And so he he wasn't the guy from the Munsters. I thought he was. Yeah, so did I. Okay. He goes on to be in a number of films. Oh, he's in a fantastical amount of films. He goes on to be in our next film, which is The Keep. Ooh, superb. So Michael Man brings him back. He's also in Broadcast News. Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Yep. Uh, we talked about him in a film previously. He was in Ron Howard's Far and Away. Ah, yes. He was also Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh. Miracle on 34th Street and so much more, Craig. Man, seriously, the guy was, you just seeing him everywhere and never aged. He looked exactly the came, same, didn't just he? Just came onto the world as a... Just a grizzled old man. Yeah, <laughs> so funny. Um, so along with Prosky, it also saw the debut of a number of actors. So mm. as we mentioned, Dennis Farina was a police officer before this. He plays Carl. Beautiful black hair. That's you weird did, to see Dennis Farina with black hair. <laughs> uh, this is actually James Belushi's film debut. Oh, is it? Yep, as yeah, Barry. James. Um, there's also film debut for William. He did well. Uh, James Belushi's really good in this. Yeah, he did really well. I was surprised that he didn't have more serious stuff. Yeah. Oh, I was, yeah, I was surprised they didn't try to comment. Later on, I yeah. mean, in his career. Yeah. Uh, it's also the first film for William Peterson. Yeah, I saw that. That's yeah, hilarious. As Blinkin, a bouncer. Blinking, you miss yeah, it, man. He's literally just the bouncer in the bar. <laughs> he's a man hunter. And a man named John Kapalos. Kapalos. 
John Kapalos, uh, I noticed his name in the credits and was like, I feel like I've seen that. And he is like death of an extra worthy. <laughs> so, uh, but I'll quickly just give you a little rundown on John Kapalos. He plays one of the mechanics uh, when they go and they're working, walking through the car yard early on in the film. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's the mechanics just sort of. Uh, going along, having a bit of fun. Um, so John Kapalos has he's still working today. Very, very busy. Good on you, John. Um, yeah, good on you, John. There he is. Getting the lifestyle. Um, all the way up to he was in the Umbrella Academy recently. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, John Kapp. He's in Big Sky on Disney+. Plus. Um, so he's in five episodes of that. But just have a listen to some of these films that he's been. I'm just going to go backwards as I scroll through IMDb here. Uh, he made a couple episodes of Suits he was in. He was in The Expanse for a couple episodes. The Shape of Water. Um, oh. Going down, he's been in NCIS. He's also been in uh, The Republic of Doyle. Do you remember that show? No. Um, wasn't around for, for very long. Uh he was in Justified, Psych. Um, oh, just wow, this goes a journey. Modern Family. Seriously, he's What's got he look so like? much. Uh, been in Criminal Minds, Shameless, Castle. We're working our way through Castle at the moment. Law and Order, Los Angeles. Yay! The Mentalist. He's, he's really a TV journeyman um, who's been in House. Shows his face. Shows his face. Here we go, Craig. Shows Here we fierce. go. Here we go. So I can... You so can look at him right so there. So figure him out. Figure him so out. So John Kapalos, check him oh, out. Oh, no, Johnny Kapalos. Sheet. So he's been in so much. And this is actually his first film, which is when you have a look, you'll know which who John Kapalos is. Okay, yeah, you'll know John Kapalos. So man. he's one of the mechanics. So when they're in the car yard, early on you see Frank go into his used car yard. Yep. Um, and there's he sort of walks in, gets his paperwork, walks out. Man, that bro is in a hardcore film and I'm trying to remember it now. But, um, yeah, but keep going, yeah. So casting is in place. Michael Mann then goes off to get his actors to, that are involved with the heist to take lessons, mainly, as previously mentioned, Khan with Santucci. Basically, he wanted so much authenticity in their performance that they could do these jobs better than the people who were teaching them. And again, as we mentioned, James Kahn became that. Yeah, um, doing such a great job. Now, interesting little fact is that the film was shot uh, in a 1.85 to 1 standard widescreen aspect. This okay. Is, this is the only film man does that's not in an anamorphic presentation. Oh, so yes. anamorphic for those people at home. Yes, uh, When you watch a widescreen uh, presentation where the ratio is, when I say 1.85, it's your 1.85 wide to one high is the aspect ratio of the screen, yep. giving you what is the rectangle with no black bars above or below. Uh, anamorphic is 2.35 to one, which is 2.35 for every one high, giving you the black bars that you would get when you watch, say, something on Netflix or a uh, Blu-ray gotcha. at home. Because that's why I was going, it's like, oh, yeah, it has, it has, um, it had black bars on mine. Oh, did it? I'm trying to remember. Mine was oh, definitely filled the whole caboodle. That's right, I knew John Kaplos. John Thank Kaplos. you. Christ, the breakfast club. There you go. He's the janitor in the Johnny breakfast Kaplos. club. He's, the, he's everywhere. He's the, the one that they, um, that they tease him, but he also was the valedictorian of that school. Oh. Everyone, you will remember it from that, man. Yep. 
Remember from that? Johnny Cavaloth. Johnny Cavaloth. Thanks for tuning in to my death of an extra thank today. You, thank you. Thank uh, now, man, also hope that the score for the film, musical score I'm talking yep. about, would be made entirely up of a Chicago blues soundtrack. We talked about last episode, his love of Chicago blues. You can hear a little history of the of evolution of blues in that episode. Mm-hmm. Now, man felt, however, he, he says, however, I felt that the, what the film was saying thematically and the facility with which the film might be able to have resonance with the audience, I felt that to be so regionally specific in the music choice would make Fran- Frank's experience specific only to Frank. So I wanted to be kind of transparency, if you like, the formality of electric electronic music. And so he chose Tangerine Dream to then do the score. Fantastic, man. And I thought we'd take a little moment to talk Tangerine Dream. Is that okay? Tangerine Dream. Uh, Because this score, which I've listened to a few times now in the lead up to this film and afterwards, I adore it. It's pretty crazy, hey. It's it's a good little, it's a good little, um, it's it's not, it's it's a juxtaposition. But it's not age. No. I don't think like I think it suits the film. Yeah, it's strange. You know what I mean? Like it? it's not one of those films where I'm like, ugh, like you know, watching like Lady Hawk and you know, and yeah. they're riding on horses and what do you mean? You're like, nope, nope, nope. Well, it's actually the score was quite divisive for viewers. Oh, really? Okay. And the reason is, is that this is considered one of the first scores ever to have synthesizers. Oh, and okay. it's actually a bit of a trailblazer for future films. So it was so divisive that it actually was nominated for worst music, worst movie score at the Razzies that year. Oh, wow. Well. Um, what has the Razzies been going for? I don't know. Way longer than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> I just realised that. That too. Like, um, but it's it's really quite groundbreaking. It's considered groundbreaking for future scores. Yeah. And actually mainstream music because it's the first time that synthesizers became aware for a lot of people mm. and the way that they were used. So Thief was actually released nine months before Chariots of Fire would then go on to win an Oscar for its synth-driven score. Ah. And so basically Tangerine Dream and their score in Thief starts laying, sort of paving the way for audiences to be prepared what other for movies what is a synth Tangerine score. Dream uh, Risky Business. That's it. Uh, they do The Keep. They basically work all the way up until the last. So are they a band? They, they're a German band. Okay, that so does like Rammstein, are they, compo- they do musical they- compositions. Okay. Uh, their focus was never to have one person be the sole face of the band. So they didn't, so, you know, a lot of so bands. They're not like a, they're not like a, hey, they're down at the pub, Tangerine Dream are playing down at the pub. No. But and when, and I was actually thinking we might do a little. Can we do uh, a Tangerine Dream? I'd love to do a little mini app on Tangerine Dream. They've got over 100 albums they've released. Okay. They've worked on 50 film scores all the way up until the fifth Grand Theft Auto um, game has some of their work on it as well. Have they ever won an Academy Award? Not that I know of, but they're actually uh, considered so crucial. Them and a ger- another German band named Kraftwerk yep. are considered um, crucial to the electronic music evolution. And the 80s, which when you think of pop music in the 80s is very synth-driven, yeah, becomes this whole scene which Tangerine Dream's tone and rhythmic uses 
start begins to permeate into this mainstream. I fucking pop love music. the name Tangerine Dream. It's so good, isn't yeah. it? Um, they're actually considered so influential that when asked what made them want to become a band. Daft Punk lists them as the reason that they took on synth. Good lord, that's huge, man. So, I would love, I would love to have the opportunity, Craig, to sit down and do a little half a discussion around Tangerine Dream. If you're up for that, well, are they alive? On a mini episode, uh, one of the main members passed away a few years ago. I think they are still operating, but it's they were a very big part of the um, the musical direction. I'm going to so. try to talk to them. Go for it, Craig. Let's go talk to him. Make the dream happen. Let's make the dream. Let's, yes, let's check I out some it. tangerine. And- um, so the film actually debuts at Cannes Film Festival under the title Violent Streets. Ooh. And I actually did some research after and I found that James out. Kahn Festival. And found- <laughs> that's right. This is James Kahn's house. <laughs> Just in front of James Kahn's house. Um, hey, check out my hairy shoulders. <laughs> oh, man. He had, a, hairy, <laughs> he had a man sweater going I was like, on. When, I, when they went to the beach sequence, I'm like, all right, cool. They're going to do the buff body thing. And I'm like, oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> he's not even hairy enough it's just like can we take a moment it's like, it's like it's like a it's not like a, a hardcore hairy dude it's like a um a, like a guy losing hair <laughs> you know like you just see these wisps off him and shit like that and just like, oh my he God. had this like <laughs> I kept thinking it's terrible it just like seriously you could just you could honestly hear the beach wind whistle through, <laughs> <laughs> whistle through his body <laughs> And there's a What's reason. What's that, James? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a reason you don't see him and Wednesday, a uh, uh, Tuesday, um, have a have a hug on the beach. Is because oh, no one wants no. to nuzzle into that. No, um, gross. Yeah, no sex scenes for also, him. James Belushi absolutely smashes. smashes. <laughs> I fucking love that. That's he one of my favourite James scenes ever. down and absolutely pummels and, her and into the And slams into the back of her legs, man. <laughs> With full Belushi, Belushi ass, man. And you know Belushi's have big weight, man. They have big asses. They're like the Killians, I reckon. And fucking, they just he throws a body into the back of it. That's oh, hilarious. Man. He that's literally, hilarious. I was like, I paused it and I rewound and watched it again because I was like, that is this, ruthless. That's a hardcore, hardcore. Again, <laughs> I thought that was the end of the film. Yeah, and then James Khan randomly, oh, look, I found a shovel. Oh, look, I picked up a little, little shell. And then that's it. And then I'm like, oh, cool. It's ending. Yep. <laughs> I thought it was over, but nope. it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, I also found, I actually found some it's posters. triple deke, man. It's a triple deke. <laughs> we got deked out twice. <laughs> He's throwing it out there. Um, I actually found some posters for Violent Streets as well. Oh, so really? I'll put We're them up on the Violent socials. Awesome. Uh, really cool. Very neon-y. Uh, in the way they sold it. So its US release was March 27, 1981. And as I mentioned, a few months later in Australia. Now, the film wasn't a financial success, but it really cemented Mann as an up-and-coming director and writer yes. through this really self-assured Hell debut yes. film. So, Craig, we sort of ask this question every single week. Yes, we do. Which is, have you seen this movie before? Never. <laughs> Me either. Never. Me either. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so the labyrinth? No, no. I think it's, um, um, what is it? Um, it's Ralph Wiggum. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Will we ever give, should we just give in? 
Never! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Craig. Um, Remember when we played George Washington? <laughs> um, I'd love to know then, uh, going into this pretty, I went in pretty blind. Yeah. I uh, hadn't done much research before my I was watch. drunk too. Uh, <laughs> um, but I'd love to know, what do you expect then of this film going in to watch it for the first time? Oh, man, I was expecting... Um, you know, like I, I don't hold much for the first films. Yeah, I don't like, like you know, look, hey, the Loveless, you're going looking for potential, um, but I have, I haven't really enjoyed first. The only really two first films that I actually enjoyed were um, Dawn of the Dead, yep, and Evil Dead. Yeah. So they have to have dead in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like Evil Dead was a very different reason. You yep. know, it's, you know, and obviously it's just so gaudy it's good. Yes. Dawn of the Dead was just so good it's good. Dawn of the Dead was <laughs> slick. The Evil Dead was inventive. Yeah, and exactly. And you can't help fall in love with them for what they were. Yeah. And and plus also there was a lot of nostalgia with Evil Dead, you know, because it yeah. was just one of those things for, that you grew up around that time, obviously in 1981. Yeah. Um, so yeah, with this one, I was, I just wasn't expecting huge amounts, you know, yeah. um, I was expecting it's hard R. Yep. You know what I mean? So I, I expected boobies, man. <laughs> um, not that I was very disappointed, you know what I mean? I, but I expected to probably see Tuesday's welds. Well, but, I, I was surprised not in a creepy way, but just knowing the era yeah, exactly. Just knowing the era, that's that was, yeah, same. That's what I was. I was like expecting something like that. Like you yep. know, um, should I say I expected gratuitous? Yeah, not just boobs. Sorry, boobs. But violence very, as well. Yeah, I yeah. expected gratuitous. That's what I yep. expected. Um, this early, you know, late seventies, early eighties. That's what I expected to see on a screen. Yeah, do you know where you just a girl would walk in the background of the gangster's house for no particular reason? That you know what I mean? Yeah, that's what. And but also. Blood for the sake of blood, you know, that yeah. dirty, dark red pig blood that they use at the yep. time and shit like that. There is that shotgun shot where he gets, uh, Frank gets shot in the house. Oh, yeah. With the no. shotgun in the arm. No, no, man. James Belushi. Oh, yeah. He gets like slammed, doesn't slammed he? Slammed against that um, van. Yeah. That's a beautiful shot yeah. shot, man. That's a f- beautiful. Well, I, and I think that was something that really took me by surprise. Um is I wasn't aware that uh, Michael Mann would be so adept at shooting those action moments so early. So early, oh, look, he just he 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 just has a, um, he just has a gift. Yeah, he has a gift for death. Oh, it was, <laughs> seriously, it was so talented. Um, but I heard that he was so so keen. Like he actually got the guys to do, um. He actually got them to do like shooting. They went away for two days yeah. and were trained by a CIA agent how to hold guns and shit like that. You can see it. Like that scene where uh, Frank is moving through the, the house. The, the house, gangster's house. And also even when he goes to the office to confront the person who shortchanged his money. Yeah. Um, that that scene where he's walking out with a gun, I was like, far out. Like he just looks like that's his life. Oh, no, yeah, freaking hardcore. It's so great. So I, I may have cut you off and you didn't get to, to fully answer what you expected, Craig. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry, that's, that's what I, ex- I expected, just one of those, cause, just because the R rating hit me. Yeah. You know what I mean? I never actually looked into what um, 
what, what brought type it on. of R rating it yep. was. But uh, yeah, I expect it. But I don't really see much of that in this. I think it's um, you know, probably the C word. Yeah. Um, and for the time, some, some of those violence yeah, moments. But there were so many hardcore yeah. at eighty one, man. They're fucking. You could throw a stick in. Is that around the time? Have you seen Cobra ones. with Sylvester Stallone? Fucking the Cobretti, yeah. It yeah, must man. have been around that time. His name is Marion Cobretti. <laughs> That's his name. <laughs> Oh, um, that was a recommendation from a previous guest, John Rook. Oh, man. Cobra, Cobra is fantastic. Yeah. Dude. Fantastic. Um, I think when I think about what I was expecting, I definitely expected to see a little bit of later man in there. Yeah. As a director, I definitely did not expect to see someone as accomplished as we got. Yes. Um, I definitely was surprised by how beautifully symmetrical some of his shots were, how beautifully lit they were. Like that that shot when he's going to the car yard at night and he's got all those lights over the top of the cars and just walking and following. Like, again, the symmetry to follow the lines of the light just made for such a striking visual image. He just, I think, the only best, the best comparisons I can do to this is with Snyder. Yeah, just grabs the camera, and they're confident. Yeah, and I haven't seen as confident a first film since Snyder's. Yeah, totally. Like an accomplished. Yeah, like accomplished. Like I, I'll be honest. I'll come back and I'll watch this before I watch Dawn of the Dead. Hundred percent. Um, because I think it's a fantastic film. Yeah. Um, there are obviously some scenes where you just go, okay, post production, you may have lost a bit in that. Yeah. Um, you know, like the editing, you know, yep. that type of thing. Um, which I, like you said, he gets definitely gets punchier yep. and his editing gets a lot more crisp. But yeah, this film is just you just blow I I'm pretty upset with myself that this hasn't previously been on my radar. It's but that makes it such a beautiful surprise packet, doesn't yeah, exactly. it? Exactly. But and and to say it's so early, yeah, it's well early. It's his first fucking film. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you just go Man, why haven't I seen it? Why didn't my dad love this film? You know what I mean? Yeah. Why is this? Because this is just, it's, it's, I wouldn't even call it a slow burn, but some of it is just fantastic. Oh, seriously, I guess like I was going to progress into what we thought about the it's film. Burgl- which is- it's, it's, it's robber porn. It's burglary <laughs> porn, man. Seriously, you're just sitting and watch. And I heard people say that this is like Locksmith's favorite movies. You know what I mean? Oh, Shut it that. makes sense because he's, he's, what man wants you to know is that they they may not have been educated, yeah, but they weren't unintelligent. Well, th- I think that's what um, I think. I, I was watching a thing, and James Khan said this. He goes, "You know, if these guys weren't doing this, they would be like professors at physics yeah. and shit like that." You know what I mean? They they're just their brains just click on. They just never had the opportunity to. That's put exactly it to good right. Use. Their their upbringing was in a place where you didn't go to university. Yeah, exactly. And I love that about the film. I love the way that this film has such vibes for, like, the tone feels so Dirty Harry to me. You know, like... But without that, there's bits of Dirty Harry that almost become caricature. Well, there's a cheesiness to Dirty Harry now. Yeah. Um, But what I love in this is that this film is, and we're in 2021 at the moment, this is a 40-year-old film. And in no way does it feel dated. No, it doesn't. Like, obviously, <laughs> the way he pulls her out of the bar and stuff like that, yep. you just go, it's a bit, you know, but um, everything else? Yep. No. 
No. Fantastic, isn't Fantastic. it? Fantastic. Like, even the the twist. So, like, we think it, there's a part where you think it ends, you know, yep. and, um, you know, and the, the, the whole heist went off great. But then, obviously, you know, the mafia boss is a mafia boss. Yeah. And, obviously, tries to, you know, does all this thing. And James Khan spends the next five minutes destroying his life. Yes. Like, destroying his own life, his own character's life. Yeah. Like everything, everything like blows up his own bar, blows up his own, destroys his life. So this gangster yep. has nothing to get him with. Yep. Like literally does like we were saying earlier, what Robert De Niro says, just, just, you know, you can't leave everything in 90 seconds. This guy just blows shit up <laughs> and it just turns the film. Yeah. Like spins this film from, you know, you know, like whether it works, I'm still sort of need to think about it more, you know, because it jumps from that film to a revenge film makes sense. Yeah, totally. Both sides are done really well. Yeah. Whether that was needed, that extra last 30, I don't know yet. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it needs it. Uh, I, I think, think what it, it does, it shows that a man, what has been challenged is everything that's precious to him. Yep. And it shows that while he may be reformed to an extent, you know, in terms of yep. like he's been to prison, he's come back out, but in in the end, he is still a street animal, you know, and you're going to threaten his family. You're going to threaten his livelihood. He'll burn it all to the ground and then take you with it. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, true, true. He's that professional. He's that just... Well, it's methodical. What do I do if a job's going to fall apart? I make sure there's no trace I'll of it burn left. it and start again. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So it's a cut and run. And I, I picture afterwards he'd go find his wife again. True. And reconcile probably move somewhere else, you yeah, know? Yeah, true. Um, or or he runs has, it to Val Kilmer. And it runs, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Val Kilmer's dad. That's the, <laughs> David is... Uh, um, but I I do love the the way that I spent so much after the heist dreading that everything would go wrong for Khan. Yeah. I was just waiting for the family to be killed. I was yeah. waiting for all those things to happen. And I love the fact that instead of it playing out cliched, he almost becomes John Wick. Yeah. I actually, yeah, it's a good point. I, You know, you usually, in a cliche film, he would start losing control. Yep. Instead, he controls... 100%. His own... Yep. Yep. He's, yep. he's the leader of a gang, and you know why he's the leader, because yep. not only that, he takes charge of his life. Yeah. And I love it, because at no moment was there the wife being the damsel in distress. Yeah. There was no son being held hostage somewhere. You know, it was just like, he really did. He took the matters into his own hands. And the moment where he's confronting Lou in the house, yeah. it's just like so great. Like he is so darn good in that. And there's no overly dramatic um, death sequence, you know no. what I mean? Like with the head mob boss. Yeah. It's really just a couple of shots in between each other. Yeah. Well, he's still got a job to do. Yeah, so he can't exactly. take a moment to Once relish again, in it. Very methodical. Comes yeah. in, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> so <darn laughs> I love that. Good. He runs into, I think, is it a wife or is it a, a maid who's watching TV? I think it's the TV? maid. She's watching TV. In and her she just looks quarters. at him, looks back at the TV. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah I, I can't see you. Yep. It's so good. <laughs> totally. There were a couple of moments in the film that like time's probably not being kind on, which mm. is like uh, there was a moment where 
there's a couple of racial slurs in there about like um, oh yeah yeah a few things here and there there you go <laughs> obviously <laughs> give, <laughs> give me a chink yeah <laughs> kid when he's yep. at the adoption yep. agency give me a chink I'll raise a chink yeah. <laughs> like, oh my god are yep. you serious bro it was yeah. uh, there well, was there's a couple of like that yeah there you go time's not been kind there but overall this is a fantastic film not just a fantastic first film mm. this is legitimately like if this is the standard of the season that we've got ahead of us in terms of filmmaking, um, we're in for one hell of a season, Craig. But also when he says stuff like that, I think you've got to realise this is man showing... James Khan's not meant to be a hero. No. He's not meant to be a good man. Yep. You know what I mean? He's a professional. Yeah. Um, but also he's still not. he's still not a good man. You yeah. know what I mean? Like he's he's not he's a guy who could still snap at you. Yeah. And you know, beat you to a pulp. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> totally. He's not that dude you want to go have a beer with and stuff like that. He's not that no, he's not a good dude. Yeah. You know what I mean? So and I think when he's do, when he does stuff like that, and obviously when he does that stuff like, you know, like I said, when he pulls you out of the bar and when he hits people for them, you know, just for someone who comes in and tries to stick up for him. Yeah. It's just yeah, he's he's still not a good man. Well, he's a he's criminal. just the best of a bad bunch. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Well, actually, James Belushi's the best man on there. But you saw how he <laughs> tackles his wife. You're like, fuck, okay, right? Yep, totally. He doesn't care either. So yeah, overall, Craig, how you feel about it? Oh man, overall, look, I um, I'm so damn impressed with this film, and I'm so excited for the rest of it. Me too. Um, like. So excited. Yeah. Like I have, like I said, I have not seen as impressed as I have been since Zack Snyder. Yeah. Like first film. Um, and so and this just blew me away. It Love blew it. me away. I'm in the same boat. This really Like I literally enjoyed it. Like yeah. I enjoyed this as a film. <laughs> yep. Not as a Michael Mann introspective. Not as a not as a film that where I needed to see, oh look that bit reminds me of that yep. bit. You know, that as a, just A to Z, I loved it. I, lo- I I thought it was a damn good film. As a film lover, I love it. Yep. As a podcaster, I love it. Yep. Uh, as a budding filmmaker, I love it. Yeah. You know, like there's so many things here. But this is a film, often we can watch a movie and we go, this is a fantastic film. Like Zero Dark Thirty is probably a prime example in our last season. Yeah. Fantastic film. We consider it the best film of the season. But the reality is, is is it a film that I would happily recommend for people to watch? Maybe not as much because it it's a specific type of film. Oh, yeah. But I think I could say to someone, hey, you know, there may be some things that are a bit hard for you to watch sometimes, but Thief is an absolute cracker of a film. It's, it's yeah. It's a safe cracker of a oh, film. Oh, boom. Da, 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 da. So, Craig, this is usually the part of the episode where we would crack out the Cinefall Studio whiteboard. Yep. We'd take a look at it, and as we do every week, yep, yep. we would rank it. Rank it. Seeing as I was the first film of the season, mm-hmm. I'm pretty confident I know where I'm putting it. Yeah, I'm pretty confident I know where I'm putting it. Number one. Number one. Nice. Bust it out. Straight to the top, Thief. And let's be honest, i got no idea what next week's film's like, so this could remain at number one for a week oh, or man. two. Oh, man. Look it up, guys. The Keep. The Keep <laughs> is next week. We are very keen on this. I don't know a lot about it. Aside I don't from, want to. Uh, apart from that, Supernatural. Nazi zombies is all I know. Man, I'm pumped with that. I've never <laughs> thought Michael Mann would do this type of film, so I am just pumped to see where this goes. I'm really intrigued 
as to what we've learned about Michael Mann in the last two episodes yep. in the way it's going to translate Can't to the wait. Keat. So Can't you'll you'll wait. find that next week. This friends. is going to either be a fucking like a dumpster fire yeah. <laughs> or, or a revelation. Yeah, or a revelation. <laughs> yeah. Or a bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. I've, I've been messaging Craig all week to say, hurry up, let's record so I can get onto the keep because yeah, I exactly. really need to watch this movie. Um, so, Craig, where can people find us? Hey, go on to go on to Twitter, go on to Instagram at FFTL Podcast um, or you can go on to Facebook from first to last podcast there or email us at info at FFTLpodcast.com or go on to our website, www.fftlpodcast.com. Love it. Thanks, Craig. That's where people find us. Subscribe, Subscribe. share us with your friends, give Love us a review. As we say all the time, uh, send those, us nudes. Those, those reviews that you send up, <laughs> they they actually help people Fuck, find if us. If someone does, that'd be hilarious. <laughs> Craig, you've I'm asked. Look at you, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Nothing but a beard. <laughs> Yikes. He's like the negative of James Khan. <laughs> um, also, on the socials i'll chuck up something about post watch you can find out what i think post watching the film we've talked about all of them i threw snatch and sneakers on there as well there was some real sneakers vibe in this i think it's the heistiness of it all Um, but we'll put those things up we'll keep things ticking along on there so follow us on all those socials yeah get it on uh yeah just share us with your friends get it on and talk to us. We love talking I to love people. I love talking. I love a chat. Or we wouldn't be on a podcast. That's right. If we were shy people, we wouldn't be fucking podcasting. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> if we weren't opinionated, we wouldn't be podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> so, Craig, next week we are talking Nazi zombies in the keep. Woo, the keep. I can't wait. Can't I'm wait, so man. freaking excited. So weird. Who stars in it? I have literally oh, no actually, wait idea. Wait a second. There's like William awesome... Peterson. Yeah. Is William Peterson? No, there's awesome act. There's some awesome German actors and like... Oh, yeah, whoa. from memory, like ones that we know. Oh, okay. Oh, you watch wait. it and you'll go, man, fuck. And Scott Glenn. Oh, yes, I love Scott, Scott Glenn. Glenn. Freaking love him. Love Can't his. wait. God. Uh, Robert Prosky's in there too, so yeah, you'll Robert see him Prosky. hanging out. Uh, so tune in next week. That's what you're going to hear, The Keep. It's going to be a heck of a lot of fun. Gonna we might chuck stuff. a trailer up in the lead up to The Keep so people can get excited for Hells it yes. as well. So. From all of us here from First to Last Podcast, I'm Jeff Reed. I'm Craig Killian. And you, we'll catch you next week. <laughs> <laughs> we might do that wrap up. Okay, good. Let's do it. So, <laughs> cool. So, from all of us here from First to Last Podcast, I'm Jeff Reed. I'm Craig Killian. And we'll catch you next week. See you all. <laughs>